couple of things. I forgot to say this first service, but there is a book related to identity that's kind of small called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness that a lot of us on staff have read that this is a thing I read once a year because I need it so much. Um, it's based on 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and Paul, um, where Paul says, like, I don't let anybody judge me and I don't judge myself, right? And it's like, how can I do that? Because that is so hard to live into. So we, we've bought some of these and they're back there for a dollar. So on the way out, if you want to grab one of these, um, I really encourage you. I think it, it's a very profound book. Um, thank you, guys. A couple of other things. Um, I'm going to scoot this over a little more. Is that centered? Pretty good? Okay. Um, Easter is coming up in two Sundays. Next week is Palm Sunday, then Easter Sunday. There will be, there will be people in here who don't know Jesus, right? Christmas, Easter, you show up at church kind of thing. Um, or it is a really good opportunity to invite people. Anytime I'm speaking on Easter, I'm... I'm trying to offer some things for people who follow Jesus from that, but I'm also speaking very intentionally to people who don't know Jesus. So please bring a friend. If you have a friend that you think is exploring or seems interested, and we have postcards in the back that you can get on the way out that, that just have everything we're doing that week, um, but it's a good way just to invite somebody and say, hey, uh, come check this thing out, and we will be in prayer that God will, will speak through that and will help draw people to himself. And one more thing, I really, really encourage you men to come to the men's retreat. Um, Keith is going to be talking on a really important topic, the seven lies that men believe, the seven lies that Satan wants us as men to believe, the seven lies that undermen in trying to give spiritual leadership. And I, um, Keith works with men, has for years, and I'm really excited about all that. And so for the men for a minute, uh, you guys can kind of shut me out. I want you to get reengaged in a minute, but I just want to talk to the wives for a second. Because a lot of women in church these days feel like, or you'll hear words that they're like, you know, I love my man, but he does not give spiritual leadership to me or the family. He seems kind of absent or quiet, and I'm so longing for him to step up and to lead the family well. And I want to tell you, if, if, if that's you, if it's not you, if you're like, my man leads well, I just want to tell you, as wives, encourage your men to go to this. Like, jab them in right now. I want to see some elbows going. Like, jab them and just say, I want you going. I'll do whatever it takes to carve out the time. You know, I'll, I'll watch the kids for that night and that day. I'll do anything. I just want you to go to that. Hang out, hang out with some men and let God speak to you. So I really want to um, challenge you to come April 29th, 30th. We'll probably, I think we're planning on leaving the church as a big group at 4 on Friday. Do supper that evening. Be there Saturday. Get back by 8. That's our goal. Um, so just want to challenge you all to, to be there for that. So, okay. You ready to jump in? Uh, for those of you, if you're visiting, because did, we did have a few visitors for service, I just want you to know what we're doing this morning is not normal here, okay? It's a little unusual. So if you're like, what is all that about? Come back, give us a shot again. Give me a shot again next week, okay? And now everybody's like, oh no, what is coming? Um, but I think what I'm going to talk about today is extremely, extremely, extremely important. And uh, I think even after the service, that proved to be the case. I'll say something in a minute. I had a number of really significant conversations. And in, in a second, I want to tell you why I think this is so important. So when I, my closing sermon identity, and I know you feel like you haven't closed it, you're still doing it. Um, in this week six, I really tried, attempted to make the case that a self-constructed identity a self-constructed identity, an identity built on my feelings, my desires, my internal longings, that that is an unreliable compass. 
And I gave several reasons for that. Um, and I said that day that contrary to what our culture says, that desire is not destiny. Desire is not destiny. That our desires, my desires, your desires, they're not the defining part of you. It may feel that way, but they're not the defining part of you. And I really ended that day or that section with a plea, don't trust everything you feel. Do not trust everything you feel. And after that sermon, I realized I needed to come back to that topic, but in a different way. Because I realized that that could be heard through a lens that I think a lot of Christians hear when we talk about desire that's an incorrect lens. And so um, this morning, I actually want to do something really crazy. Um, I want to give you a biblical theology of desire because I think, especially in the Western church, and I'm not going to give you all the reasons this is the case, but there's a lot of suspicion about desire in the church. And I want to talk about what the Bible says. And I really should say, by the way, at this point, if you have children here K to 6, and if you didn't see the email, I am, towards the end of this, going to talk about um, sexuality. So if, if you would rather not have that conversation with a 7-year-old on the way home, then the Sunday, we do have Sunday school next door. Um, and I'm not going to get that quite yet if you need a little bit of time to, to run them over or something. Um, Here's why I want to give you a biblical theology of desire for two reasons. Number one, again, like I said, because I really, I, I know that the church, a lot of people in church have the wrong idea. In fact, somebody um, came up afterwards and said, my belief about desire was not right. And um, I think we need, um, I am convinced, any of you know Francis Schaeffer? He was very influential when I became a believer. You've heard Francis Schaeffer. He believed that Christians needed to have a biblical worldview, that I needed to think biblically about everything. And I think a lot of times we believe like parts and pieces of things, but we don't know how to put it together in a biblical worldview. And that's what I want to try to do with desire this morning. I want to give you a biblical context for it. But to me, this is really important, what I'm going to talk about with desire, and it is because right now in our culture, desire and identity are so bound up. And our young people, the younger generations especially, this is what they're hearing all the time. It's in Pixar, it's in Disney, it's in schools, it's everywhere. And if we don't know how to talk or understand desire from a biblical framework, we're not doing a good job of raising our children. And I really want to speak to a minute to those over here that are my age and older, because I want you to know, even though you might be like, what is that and why are you telling me that if I'm 60 or something? Because I want you to know... Your, grand, your children and your grandchildren are wrestling with this in ways no generation has ever had. And there is major confusion, a lot of questions, a lot of struggling going on with desire and identity and even with sexuality, right? And we need to talk about this. I've got to be honest. We've got to talk about it. So if you're like, I don't even have this problem, I want you to know you know young people who have this problem or who struggle with desire and identity, or they have friends that are doing it, and they're trying to, to kind of reach out to friends, and they don't really know how to talk about it. And so I want to give you a model or a framework to have conversations, and that's why I was excited. I had several grandparents after first service who said, now I've got a way to talk to my grandchildren who are struggling with identity and desire, or who have friends that are struggling, and they just don't know how to interact with them. So that's kind of my heart and my goal this morning. Um, so Please hang with me. And this is probably going to feel like three sermons in one. I'm sorry. Uh, it's how God wired me. I know you're like, no, he doesn't. You don't have to do that. So let me, let me just do two things first. There are two primary ways to think about desire in our world. Two primary ways. The first way really came out of Greek thought. 
and Platonic thought. It has influenced the church, so a lot of what people in church think about desire actually is not biblical, which we'll get to in a minute, the biblical view. And a lot of Eastern religions have this view about desire, and it is this, that desire is denied. Desire is denied. That you ignore your desires, you fight your desires, you try to eliminate your desires. In Buddhism, which is a great example of this, Buddhism is based on four noble truths, and here are the four noble truths. Life is suffering. The cause of suffering is desire. Therefore, desire must be eliminated. You eliminate desire through the Eightfold Path, and they've got eight practices to try to eliminate desire out of your life. Some of, I don't know how aware you are of this. Some of the college students might be aware of this a little bit. There is this resurgence in Western culture right now of Stoicism, which comes out of Greek philosophy and this idea of denying desire. This idea of like live very simply, have no desire in your life, because if you have no longing or attachment to things, then there's no pain and suffering. It's really similar. I know a college student right now who is, who is bought into Stoicism and have had one conversation with that person. So that idea that desire is to be denied. The second view that's really the primary way of thinking of desire right now in Western culture, it's the thing that's predominating for about 50 years. It's been the reigning philosophy. And it is this, that desire is deified. Desire has been deified. And that's why all this emphasis on self-constructing an identity based upon our desires and longings. Human desire has been elevated to cosmic proportions in our culture. Again, this is what younger generations are really hearing. We're told desire is destiny. That uh, by all means, don't deny your desires. Live into your desires. Be authentic to the desires that are in you. Imbibe in them. No matter what anybody around you thinks, live into your desire. That's, that's what our culture is saying right now. And I want you to know that neither of those views is biblical. Neither of them is biblical. The Bible takes a third way of looking at desire that I think is so profound and I think so rings true with the reality of my own heart. And I think when, when I talk about it, I, I think it'll ring true with you. And so this morning, I want to ask the question, what does the Bible say about desire? What's it say about desire? How do we think biblically about desire? And how do we speak into this modern age and people struggles with desire? That really is important to me. And I want to give you a way to speak into it, to think about it and to speak into it. And so to do that, as you can see, I have, we have put up here the story of God. I did this my first year here, in fact, my first spring in March of 2019, that I tried because to me it's so important to give us the under, an understanding of the whole story of God. And if you weren't here, you'll have to go back and hear that because I'm just going to do a quick summary that's probably going to leave you like, well, I'm just going to give it a shot. That we start in Genesis where God creates everything and he created everything for good. The world was perfect. It was full of his shalom. Everything was rightly related. The humans were rightly related to God, to each other, to creation. So everything God created was perfect and good. But then Satan came into the picture. He tempted the man and woman. They ended up rejecting God like we don't want you in this world. They rejected his reign. They rejected relationship. And the Bible says that when they did that, they became broken, that sin entered in, they became corrupted, and it not only broke them, but our whole universe, Romans 8 said, it reverberated throughout all of creation where everything in God's creation is broken now. Still beautiful, but very broken. And the God could have taken this broken world and he could have just, you know, crunched it up and thrown it away, but he decided not to do that, that he wanted 
to bring it back. He wanted to come back and to get it to its original design that he was going to redeem all of creation, not just people to himself, but he wanted all of creation. That's why in Matthew 19, Jesus says, when I return at the renewal of all things, Peter in Acts chapter 3 says, when Jesus comes back, he will restore all things. I should do this. He will restore all things. In Colossians 1, Paul says that Jesus, through Jesus, God will reconcile all things to himself. God's after the whole thing. He wants people, but he wants it all. And so therefore, to do that, he had to rescue it. And God did that by coming into our world of brokenness and suffering. And he himself suffered, like the most profound truth of Christianity, that he suffered and died and was broken for us, not just to win us back to himself, but to defeat evil and to win the whole creation back. And then that there are people who, who hear about him and who are drawn to him and who are like, this is my Lord. This is the one who created me. And they want the relationship with him and they want to live under his reign. They give their life to him. I talked about that last week. And then in that person, he starts to bring his shalom more and more of his shalom into them. And then he, he's not just dealing with individuals. He creates a community of people who love and follow him, and he puts his shalom in that. And this community called the church, that we are actually sent to be agents of healing into this creation to help try to bring restoration, not just people back to God, but restoration of all things. But we'll never get this done. It's beyond our ability. So one day Jesus will return. He will come as king, and he will... We are told he'll resurrect the dead. There will be judgment. He will recreate the heavens and earth. Jordan and I talked about that at the end of the New Testament series. A perfect world again full of his shalom. And those people who have bowed the knee to Jesus, who are in a relationship to him and know him, will live forever and ever and ever with him on that new creation. This is the story of God. So where it starts, it comes back to. It's the Wizard of Oz. Like that director I heard. Every great story comes back to where it started. That's God's intent. Okay, how many of you kind of remember that? I hope a few. Like, I spent six weeks on that, so I'm like, well, I don't remember that. But, um, all right, so I want to build a biblical theology on desire based upon this story. And to do that, we've got to start at the beginning, okay? And I want you to know that when he, God created everything that he built into and hardwired us as humans with the capacity and the need for desire, he created us to desire. We were built that way. We are, we're built to have, we have a desire for food, for drink, for joy, we have a desire for relationship, for beauty, for goodness, for truth. I forgot to tell you, turn to Genesis with me. I want to show you a couple things in Genesis. Just turn to Genesis and hang there. Um, very beginning of the Bible. First pages. I want to show you how he created that world as a place that desire was part of it. And we're going to be in Genesis 2. Some pretty profound words in Genesis chapter 2. Look at verses 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Those are like desire words. He created us to have these good things we desire. And what we know, know is, the reason the heart's here is, ultimately God created us to have to desire him, and that he is our heart's ultimate desire. He created them to live in relationship with him. That that's the ultimate fulfillment of all that they really longed for. That's why Genesis 3.8 says that they, God would come and walk with them in the garden. So I want you to know from the very beginning in the garden, desire is good. It is good. 
Um, I don't have time to talk about it this morning, but if you, I, I've got like pages of places in the Bible that talk about desire, and many of them talk about our human desires in a positive way. Many of them in a positive way. And if you think about this, this totally makes sense because God created us in His image, and I want you to know God desires. Did you know that? I could show you dozens of scripture that talks about God's desires. God has longings for things. To me, one of the most profound is James chapter 4, verse 5, where it says this, that the Holy Spirit, it's a really strong Greek word, deeply desires, he longs for, he yearns for our full devotion to him. So God desires and he creates us to desire. But the story continues and bad news comes, right? When Satan came into the picture, he tempted the man and woman in many, many ways, many ways. But one of the ways he tempted them was at their point of desire. Look at Genesis 3. Verse 6, because he's tempting them to take and eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Genesis 3, 6, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, also, what's that next word, at least in the NIV? Desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So he tempted them to the point of desire. And when they took the bait, they fell and they became corrupted and broken. Um, and we became corrupted and broken because of their sin. We're born that way and we inherit that nature. And I want you to know they and we are corrupted and broken in every way. We are corrupted and broken physically. Um, how many of you, the older you get, once you pass 50, like your body starts falling apart, right? I feel the, my physical brokenness deeply. Um, we're corrupted and broken socially in relationships. We're broken intellectually. We're broken volitionally in, in choices and how we make choices. We're broken spiritually in our souls. And I want you to know we're broken emotionally in our desires. And so the problem in the Bible is not desire. I want you to hear me. The problem in the Bible is not desire. The problem in the Bible is disordered desire. Our desires have become disordered. They become corrupted. They become twisted and distorted. So let me explain disordered desire, and the New Testament's really helpful. And if you were here in, in the fall of 2019, I did a series on idolatry. And in that series, I talked about the New Testament word for desire. And I talked in that series that I really believe the main way the Bible talks about sin is idolatry, about our loves and our desires, about what our affections go to, and that we love, the, the main problem is I love things more than God. And he's to be my ultimate God, my ultimate in my life, but I make other things ultimate based upon what I love. And in the New Testament, when I talked about that identity series, I talked about the Greek word that's used for desire, for sinful and idolatrous desire. And it's the word epithumia, and that doesn't matter, except you'll, in a minute you'll understand why I say that, epithumia. And what to me is really interesting about that is I think that word is not translated well in English because it's frequently translated desire, just desire. Well, the word thumia means desire, but Paul, Paul, through the Spirit, Paul and Peter and Jude and um, John all put this word, this epi on the front of it, a proposition. They made a compound word, and in Greek, when you make a compound word, that word is very significant, and it's very intense. So what we translate frequently desire actually is epi-desire, and the word epi means over. It means to over-desire. That's what the Greek word means. When it talks about sinful desire, it uses that word for over-desire. So let me make that practical, that we are created to desire God, but we desire things over him or more than him. We desire things too much, that we're created to love the Lord our God with all of my soul, all of my strength, all of my mind, 
And, but what I do instead is I elevate my job or my wife or my children or my reputation or my success over him. I over-desire. And with all of my heart, my soul, my strength, and mind, I love something that's a created thing instead of the creator. Does that make sense? What over-desire is? These are all good things down here that he gives me as a gift. But what I do is I take a good thing that's meant to be a second or a third thing, and I make it the number one thing. And in doing that, I take him who's meant to be the number one thing, and I make him number three or number four or number a hundred. And that's where, that's the brokenness in our desire, is that the problem in the Bible is that our hearts are corrupted and we have disordered desires. Our desires are in the wrong order. And because of that, many times what we long for and what we desire are the wrong things in the wrong times, in the wrong places, in the wrong ways, and to the wrong degrees because of our disordered desire. And I want you to know this is true of all of us. I mean, if you're here, I think you know this, right? That your desires, there's something messed up in there. And it's these over-desires, it's the disordered desires that in the New Testament are described by Paul in Romans 1 as sinful, by Jude in his book as ungodly, in 1 Timothy 6, as foolish and harmful, and especially Paul, who calls these over-desires, these epithumias, deceitful in Ephesians. They're deceitful. Those desires, the broken ones, are deceitful. And that's why Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 9, wrote that, so, that profound scripture that the human heart is more deceitful than anything. It's more deceitful than anything. And it's desperately wicked. Who can understand the heart? It's because God knows that in our brokenness, our desires, our internal desires are, are, have been rewired wrongly. And that's why at the conclusion of that sixth sermon, I really said that we cannot trust our inner desires, not because desire is bad, but because our desires are disordered. There's a really big difference, okay? There's a big difference. And that's why we desperately need a trustworthy source outside of me and outside of my desires that can speak into my desires and help me discern my desires. Do you remember that Sunday I talked about the death spiral? You know, Kieran had to become a private pilot. And anybody who flies a plane knows about the death spiral. That if a pilot relies on their feelings in here, especially the way the liquid works in the brain and all of that, but how they feel as to whether they are level and as to whether their pitch is right, if they rely on their feelings inevitably they will get into what's called the death spiral. They'll start spiraling down, not even knowing that they're on the way to doom and death, okay? And what pilots learn is, is you can never trust your feelings when you fly a plane. You have to keep your eyes and your focus on the instrument panel. You have to keep your focus there because the instrument panel, it is constant, it is absolute, and it's outside of how I feel. And if you trust that, the flight will go well. You trust your feelings, it won't. And so just like a pilot, we need an instrument panel in our life that is absolute, that is constant, constant, and it's outside of myself. And you know what that is? It's the absolute truth of the Word of God. I've got to have that to help me to discern what's going on with my desires. That's why in Hebrews 4.12, um, the author there wrote that the Word of God is active and it's alive. It's like a double-edged sword that it pierces to the dividing. It, it gets down in the spirit and soul, even joints and marrow. And it helps us to discern the thoughts and the intents, the motivations, the desires of our hearts. We desperately need this, the word of God, something outside of ourselves to help us as we think through like what, these desires that are inside of me and to help me 
Help me think about those. So I kind of spent a lot of time on the broken. The story doesn't end here, thankfully. Okay? Out of love for us, out of desire for us, God sent his son. For God loved the world. He loved the world. He desired relationship in this way. He sent his one and only son. John 3, 16. 1 John 4, 10. This is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and he sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin. God out of desire comes and gives everything to win us back to himself out of his desire. Isn't that good news? And if I come and give my life to Jesus, if I come to give my life and center my life around him, he is the one who is my greatest desire, the thing that I really ultimately long for. Here's how I know that. Habakkuk 2.7 says this of the Messiah. The one whom the nations desire will come. I'm created for him. And so when I come here, like he begins to fulfill that deep longing of my heart, the deepest desire of my heart. And then as I'm in a relationship with him, he begins to bring healing and redeeming to my brokenness, including my desires. He starts bringing healing to that. But we all know, not perfectly in this life, we still struggle. And so the good news is that one day Jesus will come back And when he comes back, he will create a new heaven and earth. He will resurrect me. He will finally and fully redeem me in the totality of who I am. Physically, intellectually, volitionally, spiritually, socially, and also in my emotions and my desires. And I'll finally desire the way he intended me to at the beginning. Is that not good news? Okay, That's a biblical theology of desire. Desire is good. But because of sin, our desires become corrupted. It's disordered. Out of desire for me, God came to me to win me back to himself, the one who is my heart's true desire. And when I accept him, he starts filling that place in me that I so long, that I deeply long for. And he starts healing and redeeming my desires. And one day I will be forever with him and he will be the total fulfillment of all my desires. That's such a good news. That's a biblical theology of desire. Okay, I need to take a breath. <laughs> You can take a breath, because now what I want to do is I want to apply this to sexuality. Because this all speaks to the thing that our, our culture is so deeply struggling with right now. Let me, let me just do a quick summary, if you don't mind. So, the two beliefs about desire that are wrong is that desire is to be denied. That it's garbage. That we get rid of it, we throw it out. That's not what the Bible teaches But the opposite is also not what the Bible teaches. Desire is not to be deified. It is not to be the Savior. That's what our culture has made desire is the Savior in some way. It's made it God. What the Bible calls for is the Bible says desire is a gift from God. It was given to us by God. It's just become disordered. So that's how Scripture speaks into this. And because it's disordered, I can't trust my desires as my primary guide. And what that means is, is that many things I desire, that if I live them out, they will not end up in my, well, my well-being and my flourishing because they're disordered. And it means the same of you. If you just take everything you desire and you just live it out, you are not going to live a life of flourishing. Our culture is telling us the wrong story. And your friends, your friends who are just living out of their desire, they are not living into a flourishing, healthy life. And so if I love people, I'm willing to have conversations with them about desire, right? If I really care about people. So, but because our desires are broken, that's why we don't build an identity on them. Okay, 
Sexuality. Let me apply it here. And here's why I want to talk about this, why I'm bringing this into the conversation on desire. Because our culture has tied identity and desire and sexuality together. Right? A lot of what we hear is related to identity and sexuality and sexual desires. In a lot of ways. Not just one way. Okay? In a lot of ways. So I want to start at the beginning with sexual desire. I want to work through this story again. Okay? I want to start at the beginning. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that when God created that first man and woman, he created them with a deep desire for relational intimacy with each other. And he created them with sexual desire for each other. And it is a good thing. It is a good thing. Look at Genesis chapter 2. I hope you're still in Genesis. He created humans for sexual intimacy within the bonds of marriage. That's how he designed us. Genesis 2. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and he is united to his wife. That's a whole life uniting, including physical. And they become one flesh. That's talking about the sexual union. Adam and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed of it, right? They felt no shame. So sexual desire is good. We are sexual beings. We're created for sexual desire. I want you to know in the Bible, sexual desire is good. Can I read a few things for you? that some people may not know are in the Bible. Proverbs 5, 18 to 19. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. In the Song of Songs, chapter 7, verses 1 to 9, Solomon is writing about the sexual, beautiful attractiveness of his wife, and if you read it literally, it makes no sense. It's like the ugliest. When you read the description, it's like, what in the world were you thinking? But to him and his culture, that was a description of beauty, right? But it is very, it's very explicit in going down her body, right? Talking about his, that. And here's what, she, here's what she says in response to his description. She says, I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. And I'm telling you, that desire just wasn't to hang out, okay? He was expressing a deeper desire. In Song of Songs, chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, she says this, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And I'm telling you, they weren't going in there to read books next to each other in bed, okay? Take me into your chambers. And he responds a few chapters later in Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 10. He says, How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine. I want you to know that in the Bible, sexual desire is good. God designed us to have it, okay? It's part of how he created us, created by God. But at the fall, remember at the fall, though, our desires became corrupted, distorted, twisted. For all of us, I, I think we need to hear this, for all of us, right? All of us including all of us struggle with broken sexual desires. Every single one of us struggles with that. We just simply experience our broken sexual desires. We experience it in different ways and we exhibit it in different ways, but we are all broken sexually. Every single human. We all in some form wrestle with some form of sexual desire that, is, that would pull us outside of sex within the bonds of marriage between husband and wife. And even people who are sexually encountering each other within that bound that God created, in that, I think if you're honest, you know that even in that, we are sexually broken. Do you not feel that in your bones, that there's just something not right with me in that way? Do you not feel that? 
And I've got like three or four really important points. If, you, if I keep saying that, you're like, well, which one is really most important? But this one's really important, trust me. Okay, this is really important. Because we're talking about broken sexual desire. I want to tell you, if our focus in talking about sexuality is here, we miss, we miss the point. If all we do as people who follow Jesus is we rail on people for their sexual desire or the way they exhibit it, we've totally missed the point. And do you know why? Because the point is Jesus and it is God and ultimately we're created for him. And we need to get beyond a focus here and we need to say the fact that God is the ultimate desire of every human heart and we need to get beyond, we need to get beyond talking about this and we need to point people to Jesus. I feel this passionately, by the way. Can you tell? We need to point people to Jesus. And I think the church has failed in this. St. Augustine said this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Because this Jesus, God, is the one desire, the deepest longing of every human heart, whether people know it or not. That is the deepest longing that people really have. And that's why G.K. Chesterton famously said, Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Is that not profound? That if a man is knocking on the door of a brothel, the thing he ultimately deeply is looking for is there's this desire for a relationship with his creator. He just doesn't know it. He's, he's seeking that desire in the wrong way, in the wrong place. And that's why when Habakkuk said that he is the desire of all nations, he was trying to say it's all about him, right? It's all about him. Jesus is the one that our hearts desire. And our number one job, I've already said it, but our number one job is to point people to him. That's our number one job, is to point people to him. Because he's the one that really ultimately people are longing for. The one who calls out in Isaiah 55, 1 to 2. Come all who are thirsty. Come to the waters. You have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? Your labor on really what does not satisfy. Listen to me, eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. So I want you to know Jesus is our heart's true desire. And once we accept him and we come into this relationship with him, it's really interesting to me that it describes that relationship. One of the many ways is it describes it like a human-wife relationship and the union between a man and woman sexually. And I want you to know that sexuality within that context is meant to point people even to a greater reality than that sexual relationship. It's meant to point people to the relationship that God wants to have with us, and he's the fulfillment of our ultimate desire and longing. I think it's so profound that God uses that imagery in talking about our relationship. And then when I come to know Jesus, I told you as I come to know him, he begins to heal and redeem my desires. He also begins to heal and redeem my broken sexual desires. As he comes into my life and his spirit begins to dealing, dealing with me, he begins to work on those things and healing them, though never perfectly in this life. I mean, how many of you agree with that? Man, I still struggle. I'm going to be 80 and I'm still going to struggle with desires that are broken. So I love the good news that one day Jesus will come again and he'll recreate the heavens and earth and we'll live forever with him. My heart's one desire and all of my longings, all the things I deeply desire will be fulfilled in him. And at that point, he will heal and restore me to back to desiring the way I was intended, including 
the whole sexual desire thing. He'll restore us physically, intellectually, volitionally, relationally, spiritually, but he's also going to restore us emotionally in our desires. So to me, the bottom line on all this is that God desires to, to take our desires and to bring healing and restoration to them and to help us live a life of genuine flourishing. Um, can I give you an example of this in my own life? Um, it, it was a number of years ago that we had a student that we knew who experienced um, same-sex attraction. And he started to become a part of our group of internationals, our kind of our believing community, right? Started attending. We had students in there who loved Jesus and were passionately seeking after him. We had students in that group who didn't know him yet, but were wanting to know God and were learning about him. We had students that loved the community so much, they just hung out with us. They didn't care about God, but they just loved being around who we were. And he started to become a part of that group, and he started on a journey to God. And one day, he came to me and he said, um, I need to speak to you privately. We're in a kind of in a group setting. He says, I have a really important question for you. And he said, how you answer this question is going to determine whether I continue to seek God or not, whether I stay in this community or not. Talk about pressure, right? Do you think I'm talking fast this morning? You should have heard my, how fast my prayer, prayers were. Dear Lord, oh my. I mean, if somebody told you that, like, they're, they're going to determine what they're going to do with God based upon an answer to a question. And I'm like, Lord, I need your help. So as we walk to the place, I am praying the whole time. Like, Lord, I please, I need your wisdom. And we got to the place, and his question was specifically this. He said, I've got to know this. And again, the answer is going to determine where I go from here. He said, will I go to hell because of my same-sex attraction? Because I have this desire. Will I go to hell for that? And there was a lot of prayer going on. And I said to him, I said, I appreciate the question, but I want you to know, you're asking the wrong question. There's a more foundational, more important question that you need to ask. And I want to challenge you to think a little bit differently. I said, the, the question that you need to ask is this. Is there a God who created me in this world? Is there a creator? And does he desire me? And does he long for a relationship with me? And is that God good? And is that God loving and specifically, did that God break into human history in Jesus? And is Jesus my creator and the one who is seeking me and wanting relationship? And I said, here's my challenge to you is ask that question. Pursue that. And then if you come to the point that you are drawn to Jesus and the beauty of who he is and you want to know him, and if you end up giving your life to him, let him answer that other question for you. But you need to follow Jesus. Does that make sense? We have got to point people to Jesus and quit Pointing out how people are broken in their desire. Because we're all there. We've got to point people to Jesus. And he took me up on that. And he stuck with the group. And he continued in that journey. Seeking after God and after Jesus. And I was thankful for God's help that day. Um, I want you to know, um, people need to hear this story. That's why I did this early and pastoring here, this story when I did that six-week series. People need to know this story. 
We live in a generation, I mean, humans need stories. We live in a generation that lives on stories and loves stories. We have the world's greatest story, and we need to start telling this to people, and we need to help people start thinking through their issues in the context of this story. So that's part of the reason that I've done this. I mean, I've got kind of a lot of reasons. But I want to stop for a minute and just give an invitation, okay? Because every single person in here is broken in their desires, and everybody in here is broken sexually in their desires, every one of us. And I want you to know there should be no safer place in the world to talk about my sexual brokenness or my struggles or my questions than here. This should be the safest place. Do you know that? But I'm going to be honest, for a lot of people, it's not the safest place. And we, need to, we just need to be different about that. We need to be about Jesus. That's my kind of call this morning. And I, I just want, if there's anybody here who's really struggling, like I, I'm struggling with some sexual desires or brokenness, and there are so many ways that can happen. I mean, I can just name one of them. So many men struggle with pornography, okay? But there's different ways sexual brokenness is exhibited and experienced. But if, if, if you're like, I've been hiding that in shame, that please, you know, Jason Hubner, Lisa, Jordan, I, I mean, there's so many people here, somebody that you love and trust, please, Please, let's, I just want, I want this to be a safe place that somebody can come up and say, this is where I'm at, and what we're going to do is not point a finger, but we're going to point people to Jesus, right? That's what we're going to do, because nobody loves me more than him. All right, I know that's a lot, but I hope that that's given you a biblical theology of desire and how we think about desire and how we think about sexual desire and how we need to engage people. And trust me, they, I talk about the younger generations a lot. They desperately need this story and they need to know how to think about because they're wrestling so profoundly with this. Let me shift gears for a second. Can I do that? Because I've said Habakkuk, the one, the nation's, desire. We're created ultimately to desire him. David in Psalm 27, 4, who wrote a lot about his desire for God, said this, this one thing I desire, my one thing, is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. That's my one desire. That was his hunger, his desire. That was his thirst. And just to all of us who follow Jesus, we were created for a relationship with God and to hunger for Him. You know that? We were created to hunger for Him. I think we know that. To thirst for Him. Listen to more of David's words. And this isn't David's. I think it's Asaph in Psalm 73, 25 to 26. He says, whom, am I, who, whom have I in heaven but you? On earth, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, they may fail. And do I not feel that? But my... But God is the strength of my heart, and he's my portion forever. In Psalm 42, 1-2, we sang this, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. Where can I go to stand with him? In Psalm 63, 1, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 84, 1 to 2 and verse 10. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns for you. It even faints for you. For the courts of my Lord 
my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God because better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I yearn for you. I long for you. I thirst for you. I hunger for you. And I'm telling you, I read those words. And I'm like, that is so intense, his language, right? I'm in the Psalms right now. Almost every other day I read something David writes. I'm like, Lord, I don't know that I can say that with the intensity that he does. I don't know if I have the hunger for you that he did. I'm not sure I thirst for you the way you long for it. Help me to hunger for you. It's been a cry of my heart. So I want to ask the question with where you are today. Are you hungry for God? Right now in your seat, in your life, are you hungry for God? Are you thirsting for him? Are you like dying? Like until I can really know you more, I'm so hungry. I need you. Can you say what David says? Or would you be like Revelation 2-7 where Jesus says, you've lost your love. That first love, it's gone. It's gone out. Return to it. And so my challenge this morning is we need to hunger for God. And I don't know where you are. It's something I've been longing for that I'm praying every day. Lord Jesus, give me a greater hunger for you. The first Sunday I preached here, I said, if you remember, that I have zero interest in leading an institution. I have no interest in that. I said, I want to be a part of a movement of God. Okay? We can lead an institution all day without hunger for God, but if we want a movement of God, do you know that there has to be hunger of God? Because God comes to the people and places who want him and are hungry for him. And I'm so hungry for him. And I want us to be a place that's hungry for him as well. So I want you to stand with me. Would you stand? I want to finish with this great old song from probably the 80s, As the Deer Pants for Water. And can we just sing that with a sense of, of longing that this would be the reality of our hearts?
with me. Um, I have a prayer. It's one of my favorite prayers from A.W. Tozer. It's about this cry for hunger for God. And so would you pray this with me? Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me the grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. Father, I just, that prayer is the prayer of my heart. We all hunger for you. I pray that you would make this a place of people that are hungry for you. Because we long for you to come into this place and to move us in a way that will just impact this city so profoundly. So we just, we just pray for hunger, for more hunger for you. Help us to root our lives in you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, the one whom the nations desire. Pray in his name. Amen. All right, 12th, you are sent.